Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Joel Cherney. My guest is Drew Morton, editor of the book After Midnight, Watchmen After Watchmen, published in 2022 by University Press of Mississippi. Given the importance of the original limited series Watchmen, one of the first more serious comic book series by a mainstream publisher, it was quite a while before it was adapted in any way. In this collection, the authors discussed the Zack Snyder film, the DC Comics sequel Doomsday Clock, and the HBO miniseries. Drew and I discuss how he brought together the contributors and how each reviewed their ideas of how these adaptations related to the original work. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Drew Morton. Welcome, Drew. Hi, thanks so much for having me today. I am speaking with Drew Morton, who is the editor of a new book called After Midnight, Watchmen After Watchmen. It is from the University Press of Mississippi, who is... It's a great publisher for historical references and also for these kind of books. I've been doing a lot of interviews from UP Mississippi authors, and they've always been great books. And it's really great that uh, we found another one. I saw this in a in a listing earlier this year, and I said, "Oh, got to put it on the list." And they didn't even have it listed available yet to even put me on a list. So it took a little bit, but anyway. And so. Thanks for joining me, Drew, and let's talk about how this whole thing came together. First off, what I always like to to ask authors, or and especially those who come from academic backgrounds, which most, many of the authors I interview are from, what's your background? Where did you uh, begin your interest in the kind of uh, material that you teach and also that you write about? Sure. Well, well, my academic background began at UW-Milwaukee, which is a very small kind of satellite campus of the UW system. Um, but despite being kind of in between a commuter college and a proper university, it kind of has this weird status in the middle of those two things. You have some really amazing faculty there. Um, Patrice Petro, who was head of SCMS, was there when I was there. Um, Tasha Oren, Gilberto Blasini. So I, I had access to some really amazing film classes as an undergrad with these first-rate professors. I wasn't in a giant lecture hall or anything like that. Um, but I had ended up at Milwaukee just out of kind of sheer happenstance. I, I was a kind of lower middle-class kid. My parents, my dad didn't go to college. My mom didn't go. And I got really into movies and comic books in high school and thought I was going to be a movie critic or something like that. And then I started taking these these classes at Milwaukee. And I was like, wow, you know, like you can, this is like a job. This is something you can do and you can share this knowledge with other people. And just, I just loved being in that atmosphere of having these conversations about the, the popular culture objects I spent so much of my time with. So um, when I was there, I was really drawn to a um, professor named Benjamin Schneider. And he taught two areas of interest to me early on. Um, one was American independent film, which is what I started off doing um, coming out of undergrad into graduate um, school. I wrote my first couple pieces on Steven Soderbergh. So he was my advisor on a thesis that I wrote about him. Um, but my senior year of, his, of uh, school there, he taught this really great class on film adaptation. 
and we're reading all these great articles by like, you know, Andre Bazan on adaptation and James Nairmore and Dudley Andrew, kind of the greatest hits. And we're studying, you know, tale and the, the, the natural. And a lot of this conversation has to do with content, right? Why did so-and-so change this theme or how did casting this actor augment this? This wasn't um, necessarily because of any fault of Ben's or anything. It just was kind of the way that we tend to discuss adaptations, which is in terms of being faithful to narrative material, right? Um, and at the same time, there were these really unique movies coming out like Sin City. And I remember hearing about 300 and I was like, well, these are comic book movies and I like comic books, but they're actually trying to do something different with comic book visual style. They're actually trying to bring it into the movie uh, more directly than other directors had traditionally done before that. So I was really interested uh, at that stage in kind of writing about the adaptation of visual style. And that kind of became the, the, the seed of what eventually became my dissertation. I just couldn't kind of put that idea down throughout my time in graduate school at UCLA. So I, I hope that answers the question. I know it's a little long-winded, but yeah, that, yeah most like most academic journeys, it's kind of a... Very know, very work. few people will tell me, this is what I planned all along. <laughs> and I certainly understand the the role of having to go to a, com, you know, of a commuter college, especially in a family where academics wasn't necessarily as a high a priority um, so I understand that concept. And then that's often where you discover something you never knew and your life suddenly changes. So know that, know that quite well. Um, now, did you, is, is the, I know you've written another book. Is that one, did that come out of the dissertation or was this a completely different one? That was an adaptation of my dissertation. So panel to the screen is an adaptation of my dissertation, which I think at the time was called panel to the frame. So it's very, very close. Um, I think the book is better. Um, I I found one of my hangups, and I'm sure this is true of most early academics, is that when they're writing a dissertation, it's really important to sound smart. And so you start dressing up like kind of banal observations in these, you know, three syllable words to make it sound like it's not banal. And I remember going back to it after about a year and I was like, what was I saying here? Like, really, what was I trying to communicate? I honestly don't know anymore. And then I just kind of like, took a back seat and started looking at my writing from, you know, outside of my own head. And I was like, what am I actually trying to communicate? I don't have to write in this jargon. And that's been one of the most kind of fun things about getting out of a PhD program and starting to kind of explore um, as a tenure track professor is what, what's your voice? What do you actually want to sound like now that you don't have to write this very spe specialized kind of academic document? Um, and I don't think we spend enough time talking about writing and, and writing style and voice enough in academia. <laughs> that is one of the good things about the last, I'm not even put a time period on it because I don't know, but these days now academia has largely, depending on the field, has really opened up as far as being much less uh, stayed, I don't know what the right word to use is, but uh, stick in the butt, I'm not sure. Uh, and that's why publishers like, you know, yours for this book, and there's such, they, they fill such a great void because these are important topics that people are studying now. And given the popular culture aspects of learning and, and that makes it so good. So, but, so you are currently at the University of Texas Look, you you say it because I'm I sure 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 sure. So we have two dominant systems in Texas, and yeah, they they get kind of particular about which one you're in. 
Uh, so I'm at Texas A&M University in Texarkana. So kind of a small commuter campus, not unlike the one that I went to as an undergrad. Well, as you pointed out, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, what kind of class? I mean, what what is your actual field that you, is it film? Is it is it liter- just popular culture or what are you teaching? Shh. That's a great question. Um, I'm in mass communication. So because it's a very small department and it is kind of more of a teaching intensive position, I teach 4-4. That requires me to kind of go a little wider uh, than some of my colleagues. So yeah, I teach public speaking once in a while. I teach um, a class on comic books and film. I teach introduction to mass communications. I teach news writing. I came out of journalism, so that kind of comes out of my background as well. So I'm, it's kind of a jack of all trades thing. The only thing I really won't touch is anything with quant or public relations in the title. <laughs> but yeah, um, I, I kind of like it. I mean, I, I really enjoy having to draw on very different skill sets from my background. I mean, I was in you know, public speaking probably kills most people's souls to want to teach that class. But I, I did debate and public speaking a lot as a high schooler and an undergrad. And I'm like, yeah, that's a really important skill set. I love teaching that class. <laughs> it's fun. So obviously you mentioned growing up, comics were a part of your everyday life. They were mine as well. I probably developed a lot of reading skills from reading comics, as a lot of kids did. Of course, I'm, mine were a little bit Prior to yours, my, I, when I was reading, first reading comics, we were talking about 60s and 70s where everything was pretty straightforward. And even though I was a DC person, even though Marvel by that point was had taken off, but uh, then I went away from it, but then came back right around Watchmen time. I started rereading comics in the eight, late 80s, uh, right around just after DC did its crisis and rebooted its Superman so it was right in this period and of course Watchmen for people who know the history was one of DC's first limited series it wasn't the first you get Camelot 3000 and Ronin before it but still it was still an unusual thing so Watchmen as a comic um, so I read it close to when it was released it was a couple years after but so I do remember what the um, how crazy it was considered or how unusual, especially for its adult content, even though there were occult, adult comic books and obviously, but not from DC. So where was your first uh, note of, I mean, obviously, like you say, you, you, you were uh, reading comics already, but where did Watchmen drop on your knowledge? So I had like two very distinct periods of comic book reading when I was growing up. Um, Essentially, I'm a kid of the 80s. So when that 89 Batman movie came out, I got into comics. Unfortunately, my small town in southeastern Wisconsin, Port Washington, did not have a comic book store. So we had a Walmart. So I had to kind of settle on whatever the Walmart would have. And, you know, they'd have maybe four or five different titles on a monthly basis. So it was real spotty, right? You couldn't get back issues or anything. So I I tried to get into Batman, but of course it was kind of intimidating because you see these covers and it's like number 623. And I'm like, well, I don't know what happened in the first 622 issues. So what am I doing here? Uh, So I think the first place I really got on is I found a trade paperback of the death of Superman. Because I remember seeing the Black Bag comics. My dad, who sold 
uh, baseball cards and did these trading card conventions and you'd see that piece there because it was worth so much money or people were trying to make it be worth it really so wasn't money by because saying. there were millions yeah, of yeah, them the, but yeah, I yeah, saw yeah, one the other day at a store near here where it's $75 they had it listed for and I can't imagine anybody spending any money on it but anyway because there were so many of them oh yeah exactly so I, I got into it there, but it was never like a system and I never had widespread access. It was just kind of more of a general interest. But when I went to college, um, one of my best friends was working in a comic book store. And, I, you know, you're in college and you don't have a whole lot of money. And he'd be like, you know, he had a pretty decent collection of his own. He'd be like, here, borrow this, read this, check this one out. So one of the first ones that a lot of my friends who were, were reading comics much more actively and thoughtfully than I was reading uh suggested was Watchmen. And I think that's both a genius suggestion and a horrible suggestion because so much of your understanding of Watchmen gets richer when you read more and more comics and you can kind of see what it's doing with the genre. But at the same time, coming into it relatively cold, you know, it's got a great mystery plot. I remember as being like a fan of like film noir and movies like Citizen Kane, I was just kind of transfixed by you know, who killed this guy, what caused it. Um, I'm reading this narrative that's much more intricate than the kinds of stories I was used to. I knew that there was kind of something going on in between the cross-cutting between uh, Tales of the Black Freighter and the rest of the material. It was just the, the kind of rush that you get from seeing a story that completely surprises you. And yeah, after I read it, you know, I read more comics and then I, I'd come back to Watchmen maybe once a year, once every two years. And it, it's it's a it's a ride. Every time I teach it, I tell my students, I'm like the first time I read this thing, it was in like six hours. I read it in like an afternoon. Nowadays, it takes me like six days, you know, where I'm looking at the imagery and I'm paying much more attention to um, the mise-en-scene and the little clues that more and um you know, the team kind of put into those panels just because it is so rich. So, yeah, it's it's gone from being this really, really light read to me to being something that I, you know, I'll savor each issue and read it an issue at a time across two weeks and try to, you know, feast on it. Of course, it also became, I don't know if it was the first, but it was probably close to one of the first trade paperbacks that DC put out because... The issues were available. I saw them in stores at the time, and you could buy them. They weren't that expensive but uh, at the time. But then they came out in trade paperback, and, of course, that became a whole new way to... So between trade paperbacks and digital access nowadays, uh, comics has become a completely different way to, to read. The other thing that I think Watchmen had going for it was that you pretty much knew it was a story. It was going to have a beginning and an end. And, of course, with comic sure. books, that seldom happens. But... Um, <laughs> One of the things I remember at the time was, I think I didn't read Watchmen until I had started reading Sandman, which came out, started in 89, and it pointed, you know, you started to hear about other authors, and you said, well, I like this, who does he work, who does he know, and who's he like, and of course, Alan Moore came out of that, and uh, and of course, that's where it all begins, and then little by little, you start to learn, and there was an edition of, of Watchmen, that talked about the underpinnings of, of how it started, that it was originally supposed to be that Alan Moore wanted to use these characters that DC had purchased from Charlton when Charlton went out of business in 83, and then DC changed their minds, and so he had to start from scratch. But you can still see a lot of them in them. So anyway, uh, it 
definitely changed comics for a lot of people because it was right around this time also that Batman Dark Knight Returns comes out and suddenly the whole industry changes to a large extent and Watchmen has a lot to do with that. Of course then uh, that was it. I mean we had the 12 issues of Watchmen very little anything new came out in a bunch of different editions you know it just kept coming out um, and then little by little it it became something you watched you read regularly but then nothing more it took 20 years really before DC finally decided to do something more with it which of course was first the feature film I think that's the first extra thing they've ever they ever did was the film which was in 2009 I think that's it's that old already. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it feel you that say old. it was twenty yeah. years. It was basically twenty years after the um, the film that the, the the series came out that the film came right. out, and then of course it took another ten years before the TV series came out, and then of course in the middle of all that, DC decided to bring it into the mainstream comics, which gets discussed quite a bit in the book. So. Um, what made you decide that this was a perfect example of something that you could develop a collection about? It was really seeing the conversation develop on Facebook about the television sequel, the HBO show just called Watchmen. So the one with Regina King um, and coming into that and seeing the conversations that I was seeing across my Facebook feed where I have, you know, friends who do TV studies and some friends who, focus more on history and race and some friends who do more transmedia and just seeing them interacting with one another on each other's walls and each other's so many of us were kind of like not live tweeting it because we're on Facebook but you're you're putting up these long kind of thoughtful threads about it and I was like I'm learning so much about this show that I'm not picking up just by, you know, reading, you know, little reviews or being on Twitter. There's a there's a much richer conversation to be had here. And I want to learn about it. I want to keep reading about it. I want to, you know, see what my colleagues have to say about it. So that was really the jumping off point is seeing Facebook posts by folks like Rebecca Wanzo and Kristen Warner and Corey Creekmer and uh, really just kind of wanting to see like, hey, if we can kind of spend a little more time on this and um, kind of turn it into something. Yeah. I, I, I would like to learn a lot more. This is a great opportunity. So where it is such a, it is just like the original. It's such a rich text for so many different reasons. Yeah. And of course I, you know, the, 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 I've seen Watchmen in a different way because of my age. And when I read it, I see it more as a cold war tale. And, sure. and especially at that point of the cold war where we were back into you know, evil empire and everything else, and the, and the whole concept of nuclear disaster was not a something that you thought about. Care you didn't think about it as being so less likely, and yet that's the way I read see Watchmen, and you can see where more, of course, talks about these kind of same kind of ideas and things like V for Vendetta and stuff, where something happens that there's there's a need for a a, a response. Um, so when did you well, it's first... funny you mentioned that um no it's it's kind of a digression but I've, I've taught watchmen now i teach it every two years in a comic book class i've taught about five or six times and most of the times i've taught it making students understand the cold war aspect and having to scaffold all the history into it and explaining 
you know, mutually assured destruction and, and kind of the concepts of nuclear war has taken a lot of time. And then this past time when I taught it this last spring, it was a very different conversation because they were like, oh, we're actually talking about this again. And you can kind of see the the, the kind of impact of that given everything in Russia and the Ukraine. But at the same time, I paired it with the an episode or two of the sequel series. And they were like, oh, I can also see these resonances here and how we're using race to, you know, spike fear and, you know, create these kind of fake problems that don't exist. And again, there's this kind of return of the repressed, this original kind of sin that, you know, that uh, they've done and they need to kind of uh, atone for. Right. There's no question when the series came out, it was right at the at the next unfortunate uh, issues that uh, continue to this day. But uh, it brings it in a in a different way than the, than the original did. Mm -hmm. Um what I've got to ask the question. Well, no, let's talk a little bit more about the book first, and then I'll ask my other question. Um, okay. Where did the where, when did you finally decide this was something you wanted to put together, and how did that whole process work out? I'll say this was the easiest book I've ever put together, and the fastest book that's ever come out. It was such. It was not a headache at all. I think I put out a call for submissions i was kind of tinkering with the idea over christmas break of that year what was that that was right before covid so it was 19 2019 yeah when the show aired and then by like early winter semester i'd put the call for submissions out and i think the deadline was probably like right before spring break which was when covid hit so i had already started getting all these submissions and and i had quite a few and you know a couple people dropped out and a couple people expanded it was this weird book where i had too many people then i had too few and then i had way too many people uh and had to like shorten the section so much um given the word count that we agreed to but yeah I, i'd gotten so many submissions and it was it was essentially ready to go by i think we had a proposal by may and a contract to go by the end of summer of 2019 so it was like a six-month process from just idea to contract well, and the other good thing is these were articles that probably didn't need a huge amount of outside research because, or not outside, not old outside research where you sure, had sure, to sure. go someplace to, to look up things so you could, you were more likely to be able to find what you needed either in an online format or, or similar ways so that the writing process probably was a little less stressful than it might have been. I've talked to some authors who wrote during COVID who had a heck of a time because they had in, they needed information that they had no easy sure. way to get to and it slowed down their processes where i can imagine this one probably worked a little better for that yeah no i mean there was no real archival component or anything like that i can't even imagine if you if somebody was dissertating and having to do an archival project the last couple of years that must have been horrible so when you made your initial proposal or call for papers did you pretty much have the structure worked out or did it sort of did you mention it in general and then as you saw what came in uh started to develop your because you basically have it in three parts and each part covers a specific section but how did you sort of develop that part of it i had two sections for sure right given my own interest in like transmedia and style that first section was always going to be there so I, that was kind of where i was like i know scholars in this area this is the real easy kind of bucket to fill with with different articles by folks who are going to do really great work. Um, the section on history and race and trauma, I knew was obviously going to be 
huge given the emphasis on the television show, but it was a harder bucket to fill for a number of different reasons. First off, most of the people I know in comic studies don't do a lot with race, right? So I was able to find them for transmedia sections because those are the people I regularly talk to given the nature of my work. Um, So the people I do know who do like race or TV hadn't necessarily watched the show yet. And some of them had watched the show, but hadn't read the book already. So there were people who really wanted to take part, but they were like, listen, you know, they would agree. And then they, you know, got a couple months in and they're like, I don't have time to watch this right now and COVID and Zoom and everything. And I was like, I totally understand. So I knew I wanted that to be a topic, but filling it up and rounding it out with contributors that could do that section justice was was tough. And I, I had to lean on a lot of different colleagues and ask for advice and ask for names and really try to get outside of my usual sandbox just because I thought that was a really important section to have uh, a diverse array of voices in. And then the third section on nostalgia and memory, I kind of thought might be a fruitful uh, vein of research for folks, Uh, but that one largely came out of just kind of the, the, potpourri, the, the gumbo of other submissions that didn't fit transmedia or race. Um, so I was like, oh, you know, there is this kind of through line in these four or five different pieces, which is largely about, you know, trauma and nostalgia and memory. And so I tried to get them to emphasize that more when they had gotten their submissions approved and said, can you kind of go for this a bit more than you might usually have to give it a bit more cohesion? But yeah, that was the only section that I didn't necessarily have fully ironed out coming into it so then you also unlike some collections where there's a very long introduction you chose to break up your introductory material through the beginnings of each parts which i like because it helps i've seen some edited collections where they actually introduce each essay which i sometimes think is a an interesting way of doing it rather than putting it on an introduction but then you also do have a separate forward and a separate afterward um why would did did you hope to get Henry Jenkins and Suzanne Scott to do that part, or were they in the initial period and you felt this is where their voices would be the best? Um, so to answer the first question about the different introductions, that was actually a contribution that I think the second peer reviewer made. I hadn't written my piece yet. I wasn't sure if I was writing a longer intro, a singular intro, and I needed to make sure. I kept procrastinating on it. I was like, if the reviewers come back and they start saying this doesn't work or this piece needs to be kicked out, I didn't want to write, do a whole bunch of work on an introduction that was going to be obsolete. So the reviewer was like, this is a great book, but it would actually do better to kind of tee up the major pivots um, with each section so it's fresh in the reader's memory and kind of reads as being three distinctive units rather than having this intro where you might have to page back to it and think back to it. Um, So I I liked that that kind of unified those sections a bit more. As for Henry and Suzanne, um, they're both just personal friends. We've worked on other things together. And I was like, you know, how can I try to really round out this list of contributors here? And again, try to get some folks. I just want to smart folks I enjoy talking to. I I just want to see what they have to say about the the show. And Suzanne had been writing a lot about the, the squid and the Zack Snyder um adaptation on twitter and henry just always finds kind of a unique way into subject matter that surprises you but still brings something new and fresh out of it so i was just kind of phoned in a favor on that one so 
let's get back to my original question, which I was going to hold off till we got to this point. Based on, basically, the book, most of the story, most of the articles are about the HBO series. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, there's quite a bit about the initial material, the, the, the original series, and then you, there are a number of, of writers who talk about the um, the DC sequel and. We definitely want to talk about chapter one and Alan Moore because, you know, there's just so much there. But anyway, there isn't very much about the movie. I don't know if that was because you didn't get any submission or you didn't get enough or there wasn't enough interest or you hate Zack Snyder. I'm not sure where, if that really was something to think about because Zack Snyder, I know, is a very polarizing person. Sure. And I'll be honest with you, there are, I think much of what he's done is better than worse, even though that may be a minority opinion. But um, so anyway, uh, what aspect decided that the film really wasn't going to be as important to this? That's that's honestly just more of a difference between me and marketing, if that makes sense. I was never really pitching a book that was really about the adaptation as much as the sequels and kind of spinoffs. Um, so I, I think they chose to include that. Cause I mean, I wrote about Zack Snyder, my first book. I liked that first movie. I also felt like this, this well's kind of been tapped. There was a in focus and cinema journal on it. I wrote fairly extensively about it. Drew, Drew Jeffries and the, and the book writes about it. So it was never really part of my initial plan to, to make the Snyder film a major focus of the book. Um, I toyed around initially with having a chapter that was going to try to kind of tease out the aspects of adaptation, kind of remediation um, that I saw in in kind of the show and kind of how the show was kind of commenting uh, on aspects of Snyder's style, for instance, in the show within a show kind of feels like a Ryan Murphy Snyder critique a little bit, Um, but it just didn't end up happening because Drew Jeffries kind of had a similar idea initially and then it has kind of developed in a different direction. And so I was just like, I don't really want to write that book. I want this to be about the the sequels the spinoffs and um yeah and so that was the mission of that it wasn't anything against Zack Snyder again I I will have I've I've kind of been there before um but yeah it was just kind of wanting to do something new with it no that makes sense and and you're right I would say I based on some of the material that was written about the book you know in publicity I expected more but there's perfectly logical reason why there isn't more and that's fine Um, I think if I if I could kind of predict i think the press saw that there were a couple pieces that referenced it and just were like what's the biggest way we can sell this thing now that we can kind of say there's like three or four you know mentions of the movie let's just throw out zach sider's name and see what sticks i understand yeah (laughs) but yeah uh, anyway okay that that is very logical i was just a person you know specific question of mine based on oh no it's it's a good one um you know i've been going through this watchman rewatch and everything based on knowing I was going to, this was from earlier in the year when the book was first announced that I first heard about it and had read and then watched the film and blah, blah, blah. So that was one of the reasons I asked. Um, of course, now we can get more in depth in the actual book itself. As, as you've already pointed out, the first part is called Adaptation, Remediation, and Transmedia and basically talks about the adaptation part, which we've already talked about, at least in general, 
and then the idea of taking something and using it in different ways. So uh, chapter one, um, Nothing Ever Ends, is probably the chapter I expected to be, the kind of chapter you would lead this all off with, which is Alan Moore and his his part in all of this and his continued part in all of this, where for whatever reason he chooses to continue to jump out every once in a while. The other day he <laughs> was, there was Damon Lindelof talked about how Alan Moore says, I don't even want to talk to you. I didn't ask you to, but you know, you know Alan Moore's got him make Alan Moore's point. So talk a little bit about Alan Moore for people who probably don't know as much about his role in all of this. Sure. So I think I think one of the reasons to go back to your original timeline where you were like, the book came out in like 86 to 88, you know, and then nothing happened for 20 years. I mean, that was for a reason. I, that was for a couple of reasons, right? First off, I think most artists and authors looked to Watchmen with such reverence that to do something without the blessing of Alan Moore, in which case... He was never going to bless anything because he was so disgruntled with the way that he was treated by the comic book industry and had largely just opted out and basically set up, what was he, self-publishing or had started his own publishing company just because he didn't want to have to deal with them after feeling like he had gotten taken advantage of over royalties, which, you know, the comic book industry certainly has a history of. Um, but yeah, I think the reason for that ambivalence initially was no one wanted to to piss him off. And it is such kind of like a holy text to so many fans of comic books in general. And, you know, the significant, you know, it's a significance to the medium that I think there was this kind of idea of like, eh, it's kind of sacrilegious. It's like making a, a sequel to 2001 A Space Odyssey or something which like that. Which they did. <laughs> yeah, which they did. Yeah. Um, but it, it took a while, right? Um, so but Kubrick I, I, was I think... still alive when it came out. And I suspect he probably, Arthur C. Clarke was involved in it, though. So that was an interesting way of That's looking true. around it. But Kubrick wasn't, obviously. Yeah. So I, I think I, I think that was part of it. Like you needed a historical distance from the piece until you could even broach the the creative possibility of doing something with it right um and i i, I don't think more was i'm not surprised by his reaction to lindelof i wish this would have happened earlier for the sake of the book but i mean it was that's what he was always probably going to say about it so yeah he just has had nothing to do with any adaptation of his works although he hasn't frowned upon allowing them so what alan moore's approach has been i believe is to credit the co-authors or co uh or the art artistic team so that they get their share of the uh the revenue and the residual rights and the licensing and all that and he just is like don't put my name on it so he's willing to allow it but yeah yeah i mean i i, I think an adaptation of his work is much more unlikely to upset him or su surprise him at least um <laughs> at this point then kind of deciding to do an elaboration on it i think that possibility was perhaps maybe a little more blasphemous so doing something like the before watchmen series where you had the the prequel comics about the different characters that kind of failed miserably i, I was i was surprised that they did doomsday clock to be honest given given that tepid reception but can't really blame them yeah well they started rebirth with it so they sort of Put themselves in the, you know, first issue of Rebirth ends with, uh, which was the latest sure. had had the, the the badge in the wall in in, the, in Batcave, so they had to do something with that eventually. Um, so Alan Moore, disgruntled, yes, he he did 
after Watchmen, he still continued to work for DC for a while, but then eventually, uh, as you say, he broke off with them, pretty much broke off with everyone, and quite frankly, he's still around, and you can read all about him as much as you want, but it's one of those things where you have to say to yourself, okay, what? how much was whose fault? I mean, he theoretically knew what he was getting into. He'd been working for the comics companies for years, went through similar types of issues in previous situations. So, But anyway, it, it is interesting as a, as a starting chapter to sort of get a better sense of how, a, you know, an art, a, 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 in this case, writer, deals with the comic companies and sometimes just the background of Watchmen and how it came about is so interesting and the fact that uh, I'm sure there were sure. a lot of fights going back and forth between him and DC throughout the entire <laughs> the other entire time of the of the of the writing and, and production of it yeah no I, I assume it was a pretty torturous process on some level so doomsday clock for you know to make it clear is a uh, continuation a sequel but it's also where dc attempts attempted and everybody can decide on the success of it to bring (laughs) the watchman characters into the main dc universe and it was a series it was a it was one of their you know dc does this i'm sure marvel does too i don't close follow marvel as closely but where they have their regular big deals going on it seems like they're non-stop now it seems like every year there's another one and it's never ending um but um so in many ways the, the doomsday clock uh so like for example the first question the first chapter nothing ever ends which i just mentioned was uh basically it talks about how watchmen became part of uh the overall uh dc strategy and then we have uh Another one about uh, uh, Doomsday Clock, which is Flickers of Black and White. What was, uh, it mentions, Drew does talk about the movie, as you point out there, but that's Drew Jeffries. Um, What was the point that uh, he wanted to, or Drew, am I getting gender correct? Uh, Yeah, Drew is a male. Um, And uh, yeah, so Drew's chapter is largely about um, looking at kind of the presence of cinema in Doomsday Clock and the Watchmen show. So obviously in the Watchmen show, you have this reoccurring trope of um, the, the, the the superhero at the beginning that they're watching. Bass Reeves, right? The, the Black Cowboy. They're watching the short film, kind of like the setup to the Richard Donner Superman. So you have the kind of prevalence of cinema through there. And in Doomsday Clock, there's a side character who is like a film noir actor. So he's largely dealing with the relationship between cinema and comics and how we can look at figures like, uh, I think he makes a comparison at one point to uh, cinema, Birth of a Nation and superheroes and kind of like how we think of superheroes and depict them in culture. So he's really kind of interested in that kind of overlap and the relationship between those two different media forms. And once they start to kind of touch and interact throughout uh, those two pieces of of sequel uh, material. Yeah, because one of the things about the original Watchmen, one of the other points it made is the concept of superheroes in a in a normal world, which sure. nowadays it seems like it's a pretty regular uh, 
thing that gets written about, there are so many examples, but they're, some of them are better than others. I don't remember now what the exact time timeline is between um, Watchmen and Wild Cards, but they both have the same concept, which is these are real-life superheroes that occur. The difference is there's really only one in Watchmen. Captain Manhattan is the only metahuman, where sure. obviously Wild Cards has a lot more. But uh, we obviously see that more when we get into the um, into some of this other material. Um, what uh, so the the comic? Where does the comic lie in the timeline between it and the sequel? I'm, I'm pretty sure. I'm assuming that uh, Doomsday Clock came out before the HBO series. Doomsday Clock, from what I remember, started coming out either the spring or winter before the HBO show. It may have been even a little earlier than that, but I remember picking up issues of it almost concurrently. And I believe they almost, I think they climaxed at almost the same time. Like yeah, the last Doomsday Clock got almost- behind. Got Doomsday Clock made it, it was supposed to only last a year and it ended up taking longer because some of the issues That's took longer. Right. But yeah, uh, but yeah, but it had started and started before. But yeah, the the reception I remember for Doomsday Clock was a a little lukewarm, and then some people were like, "This isn't as bad as I expected," and I kind of appreciate the nods. And then the HBO show starts, and everyone's like, "This is really good." And then almost everyone had forgotten about Doomsday Clock, and the ending of the HBO show was so powerful that people were like, "Yeah, I don't even think you're going to top this." So. Quite frankly, I started Doomsday Clock was kind of one of those like, this isn't awful. This isn't bad. And I think I just kind of skimmed the last issue. So I kind of knew what was going on because it was not nearly as rewarding um, on an emotional or thematic level as the uh, as the HBO show. And it was just like, no, this is this is the sequel I choose to put in my my personal canon. I'll take this one. When did the uh, series first come on your the, 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 the sequel TV series, uh, was it something you had heard about long before it started, or, or was this something that sort of just popped in there when it appeared? Oh, no, I, I knew about this one for a while and then kind of been following it, given that I, I, I'm less of a... I loved Lost when it started, and by the time it ended, I was angry. Um, so maybe, I, I don't know, I've had this experience during COVID where I've rewatched a couple shows like Mad Men where I really was like, that last episode blew it. And then I was like, no, actually, that's pretty good. Uh, I'd be curious to go back and watch Lost, but I loved some of the story. Well, if you ever do, was, let me know because... Let me know if you ever go back and watch Lost because I'll be honest with you, I understood the last season, and I know a lot of people didn't and got really mad about it, but I actually liked it, but that's obviously I'm in a minority. I like that. the I like the emotional side of it. It's more just like I spent so much time doing the the digging for everything else, which it, which is why I think his follow up show, The Leftovers, ultimately really got me. Which is it was like I came into it and I'm like, listen, I know I'm not going to get those questions answered. This is much more about like existential and philosophical questions, and it's probably not going to give me a lot of answers. Um, but that show really affected me, especially after. Um, that first season, the first season's kind of trying to do a little too much of what Lost was doing. And then once it kind of just was like, we're just going to do our own thing from here on out. Um, so when he was announced to be working on Watchmen and then kind of started putting the team together and, you know, you're like, oh, Atticus Ross and, you know, Trent Reznor doing the score. OK, this could be good. But I had no idea what it was really going to be about until uh, Emily Vanderwerf, I think, had started 
kind of teasing uh, the show. Um, she may have, may have seen a couple episodes early. Um, she's the TV critic. I think she's at Vulture, if I remember correctly. Um, but she had written a lot about The Leftovers and Lost and had some kind of early reactions to the Watchmen pilot. And I was like, all right, this is going to be great. But yeah, then I just watched it week to week. And as I kind of said, it was just so fun to see those Facebook discussions throughout the week where it must have been like how folks felt about watching Twin Peaks or something where you knew you were watching something significant and important and you were theorizing where the story was going to go, but you were also like trying to unpack the themes with a bunch of really smart people. So it was great. It was this great opportunity. Yeah. And unfortunately, then we also got the second season of Twin Peaks that sort of <laughs> went off the rails. But yeah, I would not be honest. I was in that group. Uh, it was interesting after the first season of Twin Peaks, of course, the key question was, you know, who, and then the whole thing just went crazy the first part. And then they went off into the forest and, I don't know. I lost. <laughs> I lost it at that point, and then of course now I never. I haven't seen one episode of the of the reboot that was on Showtime. I just, it's it's too far away from me, and and I just decided it was best to stay away from it. But uh, so the series. What was interesting? I remember when the first episode came out because obviously it starts with the Tulsa race massacre of 1921, something which. And I don't remember now at the time whether this was... I know we saw a major increase in a in documentaries and discussions and books of, about the Tulsa Race Massacre. And I don't know if the two were completely related to each other, but it is interesting that discussion of the Tulsa Race Massacre seemed to appear in more detail after the first episode of Watchmen. Yeah. I, I think that's I think that's true. I think it led to a spike. I think that led to people on social media talking more about it. I remember seeing there was a, like a genre of posts where people were like, "Do you guys know this thing? This really horrible thing happened, and I'd never heard about this in school." And then it kind of collided with, you know, this moral panic over critical race theory and you know how we're teaching history and it. It seemed like one of those like things that snowballed over like six to nine months because right that show aired in December of 2019, all and then all of us we start to get in George Floyd and people are I, I think more people are watching Watchmen during COVID because didn't they give it a, or was that in response to George Floyd where they gave it away for free where it essentially was on HBO Max I think it was for it was either for Black History Month or later in the summer they decided to air it for for free and, and make it accessible to everyone. But I think it was just this kind of moment that happened tragically dovetailed with um, the events of basically all of 2020, whether it meant having more time to watch things and think about them at home because you had nothing else to do. Right. And, well, uh, yeah. Because yeah. HBO Max, I forgot when it went on, but it was right around that time because I remember uh, some of the material that ended up there because um but the other thing is that's where the big difference is between Watchmen, the, the series, and everything else before it and other things is, is the racial aspect of how they chose to go with the storyline. of, And that's where I think uh, so many of your essay, the essays talk about the, the, the racial aspect of tra both historical racial trauma in, in one and then... Um, how HBO's series dealt with some of these issues, but in a different, you know, an alternative history 
but on the racial aspect rather than mm. the material that came out in the original series. Yeah, and I, I think from what I had read from Lindelof is that was one of his critiques of war. He picked something that was far greater and not necessarily a profoundly American conflict. And he was kind of like, well, if you're making a commentary upon American genre, you should pick an American, a profoundly American problem, or at least reflect American problems. Um, I, I think that was one of his philosophies for taking uh, race on in the sequel series. Although, of course, I mean, it does a lot of this really, really well. Um, the, the sequel series, um, but it's not an unproblematic text either, which is why uh, we have a piece in there by Curtis Maras on kind of the racial politics of place and tax breaks. He's really looking at like, where do you get tax breaks to use these locations and how are you shooting on locations? And so kind of looking at how in certain ways, this just perpetuates certain gaps that already exist in society, the ways that the show was made and where it was shot and not bringing businesses back to um, more African-American areas, for instance, and stuff like that. So that that's that's an interesting piece. One vein that I wish somebody had proposed on writing about that ultimately didn't come to pass was talking about how the show handles race in terms of uh kind of the representation of the Vietnamese, um, given that that was one of the critiques that was made of the show as it was airing, kind of, um, was it Madame True? Is that the, yeah, the Ozymandias' daughter's character and kind of how she's depicted as kind of this one note um, kind of stereotype in some ways. So, yeah, no, I, 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 I think the ways in which it deals with race can be both very rich, but also, you know, there's, there's, complicated complicated in the tv show well it's complicated everywhere and that's but yeah it, it, it's still open and there's a lot of people who now talk you know want to research uh the tulsa race massacre because they've heard about it if, you know five years ago if sure. you had mentioned it to almost anyone except they probably people in Oklahoma didn't know about it in theory at mm -hmm. least they were you know that's one of the things to to find out that people in Tulsa it was it was buried so well that even many people who lived there didn't say they didn't know about it and and that aspect of it uh, and of course then it was used again in uh, one of the other HBO series Lovecraft Lovecraft Company or is that right country. country thank you yeah uh, so it it happened to hit two hbo series at almost the exact same time but uh sometimes that's what it takes i mean you, you suddenly there's a, an, a renewed interest because something appears and same thing sort of happened with the green book when the movie came out and suddenly everything else was was out of course some of that may have been reaction to the movie as well but anyway sure. um where is your current i mean what are you liking about uh, popular culture comics related these days i know it's easy to talk negatives that's what the internet's for uh <laughs> but uh of course you know that's what discussion i, I feel way behind on comics lately like part of it's just been this issue of like price and access and then i started reading so many series that were month to month and then there'd be like a three month gap like I, I started that way with saga where i was like i'm just gonna wait till it's all done now and i'm just gonna read it when it's there because I, I can't my brain can't i think i think it was actually um 
think it was doomsday clock that finally broke me where I was reading it. And I was just like, I can't remember what happened five months ago. I always have to reread the previous issue before I read this one. And it's just not sticking. Um, so recently I, I did, there's two or three graphic novels that I've read. I read the first part of the good Asian um, again, kind of going back to my, my love of detective movies and noir. Um, and it's kind of a, um chinatown seen through the eyes of a asian uh police i think he's a pi in the in the book i don't I can't remember if he's a police detective or if he's a pi i want to say he's a pi i read it early over the summer uh and i really enjoyed it it kind of reminded me of uh what was the the comic that was about the blacklisted screenwriter fade out uh the ed brew baker uh piece so that that was a lot of fun i think image published that and i think it may have won a bunch of eisners this summer and then last night i literally just finished i want to get the name right barry windsor smith or smith windsor no it's windsor smith barry windsor smith i read his monsters last night which is this like 360 page phone book of a graphic novel kind of like from helen's in terms of its drawing style very sparse pencils and inks just black and white um, but like Watchmen, my understanding is that this book had originally been written as a Hulk story and Marvel wouldn't allow him to use Hulk in such a way, but it's really about uh, the U.S. military trying to use these like German Nazi war secrets to construct a superhero and it goes horribly wrong and they create this kind of Frankenstein tragic figure and you know the, of course the name of the graphic novel monsters takes on a double meaning where it's less about you know the figurative monster and more about the or the, the literal monster more about the figurative ones so yeah it was good it was it was very kind of like watchmen very dense and it's kind of visual architecture where i was like i felt like i read it but i also felt like i read like a third of it <laughs> where i'm like i need to go back and pay more attention to page design and a lot of it um does this kind of alan Moore. it reminded me of providence where Moore would just write diary pages for pages and pages and so barry windsor smith does that too in monsters and so you gotta it's almost like you're reading prose for long periods which in certain ways like i'm i'm just not used to reading cursive anymore and it's like whoa this takes a lot longer than i remember where it's like i'm trying to decipher this scrolling yeah, <laughs> writing um but it was it was a good it was a good piece it was uh yeah I, I, it was interesting finding out after the fact that it was supposed to be a hulk story i can totally see that well it's good to know that there's still material out there that is worth watching even as the the big two so to speak sometimes falter as far as that's concerned yeah, I can't remember the last. I mean, I was really interested from a DC standpoint. I, I haven't read a lot of superhero stuff in a, in a minute, but I was curious about that Batman 89 series. But again, I was waiting for it to end. I don't know if you know the story of this one. So essentially, they did a comic book adaptation of the script that was supposed to be the sequel for Batman Returns that they never made. So they basically did... As, as if it was still had the same actor so Billy D. Williams shows up as Harvey Dent and I was like oh I'd kind of be curious to see how that turned out but I have no idea if the movie script was any good but I think um, one of the Wayans brothers is going to be Robin by the end of it and I was like oh this could be like a little fun you know little jaunt but yeah it's just I'm so far behind on the main titles it's just 
Yeah. Reach, you, I feel you, like uh, I'm back. To, I feel like I'm back to where I was when I was a kid. Now <laughs> it's like I did. I did uh, re or not rebirth, but uh, the new Fifty Two for like five years, and then just kind of fell out of it. Well, that's where you go back and start reading the old stuff again, and <laughs> that's good. Exactly. Enough. Yeah. One of the great things is ever since straight. I mean, like you say, people you lose track, and and they come out so much that if if you're not sitting there reading them constantly. It, that's what trade paperbacks are for and it seems like now not only f the actual physical ones but the digital ones are just easy to get to now and and so you can read a lot of old stuff and and old even going very old so that's good too well what are are you still do you have anything else in the pipeline working right now or as far as um popular culture comics and so on so my my career has largely been an alternating project i, I traditionally think of it as a because I, I do a lot of videographic criticism and videographic criticism is essentially where you make a short documentary instead of a paper or a mm -hmm. book um it's non-traditional scholarship but you're doing film analysis by making a film or something like that right where you would show clips of it and kind of do voiceover narration and integrate your research and all that it's just it's a movie rather than something you read so my one for for them project, the one that was more traditional was the Watchmen book. So I'm trying to go back now and spend a year or two doing non-traditional scholarship. So I just did a piece on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and teaching that. Um, it's kind of a reflection on pedagogy. And I'm going to try to start going back all the way back to my roots and doing a videographic book project on Steven Soderbergh because I'm still like, 20 years in the academy and i'm like this really interesting directors out there and the bed of research since i was an undergrad hasn't gotten that much deeper there have been maybe two or three books written about him since i kind of took an interest in him and i was like yeah kind of re want to revisit that that was a fun little project i had going on so i think i'm going to do that um so i'm going to start working on the book proposal for that next uh next winter well, that's good. I know, and of course, teaching all by itself, having gone through the pandemic, and now whatever is came out on the other end, and and that continues obviously for all of us. So, well, I hope uh, the book is doing well. I like I said before, I I think it's it's a great review of many aspects of of, of both the original comic and. There's a lot of interesting things about the series and these days now with uh, HBO Max where it's very easy to watch it as many times as you want that um, the, the series is obviously easily available for people to watch again. And um, so uh, I've been talking with Drew Morton, who was the editor of the collection After Midnight, Watchmen After Watchmen. And I'm glad we found time to talk. Thanks for your, your time today. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. My great thanks to Drew Morton for his time. These essays are a great way to rethink the Watchmen universe. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.